to Design Conscious, a podcast exploring diversity and leadership in environmental sustainability in the built environment. My name is Sarah Lawler. I am a Sydney-based architect, and through this series, I speak to sustainability leaders working across a variety of different organisations related to the built environment, including design, construction, research and investment, with an aim to learn about the impact of sustainability leadership. This podcast is supported by the 2020 International Women's Day Scholarship, awarded by NARWIC, the National Association of Women in Construction, which has facilitated this research into gender equity and diversity in sustainability leadership. Today I'm speaking with Anne Kovacevic, Foresight and Innovation Leader for Arab Australasia. Anne is a passionate sustainability engineer with over 18 years experience. She has a technical background in computer modelling, sustainable building design and strategy development. Anne is also a member of the Independent Design Advisory Panel for Brisbane City Council. Anne has a PhD in hypersonic aerospace and strongly believes that innovative thinking and an appreciation of the planetary bounds will help us create sustainable futures. Anne joins me from Brisbane as we discuss her transition from aerospace to sustainability, the critical role of foresight for our planet, as well as gender norms in science and sustainability. Thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Hi, Sarah. Thank you for having me. (laughs) I wanted to start a conversation today about your career journey and what led you to working in sustainability. And I'd be really interested to hear how you, um, your career really leading up to your current role. Well, it's um, quite a complicated journey, I think. Um, I certainly have always had strong passion for sustainability and I think you know just um, uh, from a young age my my mother always instilled quite sustainable values and we talked a lot about how we could do things for preserving the the planet so I always grew up with this strong sense of wanting to make sure that we're doing the right thing by the planet. My passion was really in engineering, science, physics um, and so I did a degree a dual degree at the time in um uh, engineering and physics um, and really loved both of those things and I wasn't quite sure which direction to go. Um, straight out of university I did some work with the Building Codes Board in sustainability actually I'm um, developing the sustainability code for the BCA at the time and um, so that was really exciting first thing to be doing and then ended up using that later in my career so that's always been sort of a nice but after doing that initial stint I had a little bit of time traveling and then came back and did a I did my PhD in hypersonic aerospace which was really completely different (laughs) to be doing Um, but always just that love of science and engineering got me into into that there's actually quite a number of people who have done like aerospace or similar type study and then gone into sustainability particularly in the building space because um, we do a lot of computer modeling and um, 
the crossover between the two is quite strong. And I also think that just with sustainability, you're always trying to do something that's new and innovative and different. And you're trying to challenge the norms. So you really see these people with passions for things like space science and and physics and and other things that have been a bit more out there. You you see them in the sustainability space quite a bit. Wow. Who knew there was such an overlap between (laughs) space and sustainability? (laughs) There's a lot of us. (laughs) You are an experienced sustainable building consultant who now leads the Arab Foresight and Innovation offering in Australasia. What does it mean for you to be a sustainability leader and how are you using your agency to affect change? I think it's it's great to be seen as, as a leader in sustainability and I, I take a lot of pride in that. And I think one of the key things that I always try to do is um, find people with passion for sustainability and help get them in into sustainability and um, leverage as many people as we can to sort of fight the cause, I, I guess. It, it's certainly, um, I, I think, to be a leader in sustainability, you need to have a lot of patience and perseverance. I think there's a lot of ups and downs, certainly in my career. Sometimes it's really popular to be a sustainability person and other times people don't want to hear the word and and you just sort of have to to push through um, and work with a lot of different people. And I think you need to be quite pragmatic. You need to be able to understand the, um, the science and the engineering behind things so that you can work with a lot of different people and sort of change the trajectory of what we're doing now. Um, and I guess also you mentioned that I lead Foresight and Innovation now and that's really come from wanting to do more, um, we use a lot more long-term thinking to to get people to understand what those long-term effects are and be able to make the change now. Um, and I think that strategy side of things is, is really interesting and really needs to, to be there so that, that we can really create that long-term change. I'd like to talk now about your experience in relation to female representation and diversity in sustainability. And it would be really interesting to hear your reflections moving from your science and engineering background into sustainability and I guess the differences between those industries. Yeah, well, I mean, when I started my engineering degree, I think there were 80 guys in my class and four women. And by the end of it, like when we finished our degree, all four of the women went through and I think we were down, we only had about 20 of the guys get all the way through, but still it was very male dominated and, and you know, engineering, um, physics, all of those fields were very male dominated. And even within building services, you get a lot of male representation and often the the balding older type and you do end up finding yourself in a room a lot of the time being very different you know and also being the sustainability person so you're a bit bit of a thorn in the side trying to push things in a different direction so you know it's, it's certainly been a, a career where you have to feel comfortable um in your own skin and not let that get you down too much but within sustainability and particularly now um you know, there's a really strong representation of women. And I would say, certainly in the group that I'm in at Arif at the moment, Energy and Resources, well, I work mostly with Energy and Resources group, the representation of women is is really, really high. But I would still say there's still a, a, a big gap in the leadership. So once you get to a certain level, you do start to see, you know, you might have more women of a overall group, but it, like it's still at the high levels. 
um, there's a strong stronger representation of men and I think that's still something that we're you know we've got to fight and we've got to push back on because I think particularly in the engineering realm uh, it's not even just this uh, women versus men it's the whole sort of the blokey approach or that kind of thing that we really need to push past and and make sure that the factors that are seen as more feminine traits are really valued as much as as other traits because I think you know that's what we see like really good leaders being able to understand all the complexities and not just the black and white but the nuances between that and I think that's where women um, can really excel um, they're generally um, from a strategic point of view I find uh, women really able to to pull all of the different elements of strategy together a, a lot better and I think you know that's where we need to to make sure that that's really valued. Yeah, and that's certainly been reflected in the research that I've done so far and the survey um, to the industry that there are a lot of women in sustainability, perhaps not reflected all the way up through leadership, but that there is a perception of it somehow being a more feminine discipline. And so I'm interested to hear about whether you think that that is a barrier to it being taken seriously and, and then having more impact in construction. I think particularly at the moment, I mean, we see uh, with the government spending um, in, in the latest budget, you can really see this this idea still coming through that these construction or like these certain elements are more critical to uh, the economy than um, than other, you know, more traditionally feminine groups. And it, it's really trying to shift things so that we value all of these different people for what they bring to society and I think that's what we need to bring in if we can get it a better understanding across society of what all of these people contribute then we can start to bring that into the construction industry and every other industry at this stage it's um, there's still a lot of emphasis on what we're used to seeing as the economy this this much growth and this is how how we do things and not necessarily having a, a wider thought about what people contribute. Carrying on from the theme of female representation and leadership, have there been challenges or opportunities in your career that you have felt to be significant in your leadership journey? Yeah, I think um, there are a number of different challenges when I look back over my life. I think um, one of the things is the fact that I have moved around within different industries and I think that's whether that's a male-female thing or if it's specific to just specific to my case, I've certainly found that um, sort of having that flexibility and, and separate different interests um, is something that it's it's quite a lot harder to progress through your career because there's sort of changes in your, your career path. Um, and I think the other thing is that really having to, um, at the moment, like I'm, I'm the breadwinner in the family I guess and you know can't really take a lot of risk in my career and I think one of the things that elevates some careers is being able to have that really high level of risk and so I think that's one of the challenges that I've certainly found that by um, not being able to necessarily put your your job on the line and in some cases sometimes it's harder to get up into the higher levels of, of leadership uh, I guess 
as we mentioned before, I mean, sustainability is one of those areas that sometimes really the flavour of the month and uh, other times is is seen as a, a nice to have. So I think that certainly um, is one of the things where crew progression is is sometimes a bonus and sometimes it um, sometimes doesn't work out so so much for you. So I think there are a few different aspects, and you know, it's it's all a personal journey as well. You are Arab's foresight and innovation leader, and sustainability is certainly built on this idea of foresight. I'm wondering if you could elaborate a little on what you do in that role and this relationship between foresight and innovation and environmental sustainability. Sure. So uh, I started at Arup in our buildings group, um, running our ESD team there, which is Ecologically Sustainable Design. And what I found is that um, a lot of the time uh, you're trying to make sustainability decisions too late. So a lot of the things are already locked in or um, you haven't, um, you're not influencing the right people and the right decisions. And so I really started to work in this area of sustainability strategy and broader innovation strategy in general. And um, that's when I started to work a lot with our foresight and innovation team, which is a global team, and obviously looking at um, sort of a, a wider span. But sustainability really does, it's that whole gamut of everything. It's not just a small element of, of construction. It, it certainly affects all of the things in our cities. And so the foresight role really has helped me um, sort of elevate the thinking and the strategy making and the discussions that go on really early on and also that really long-term future thinking like what's going to happen if we don't make these strategy decisions now if we don't get these things right this is how we're going to live but also how our children are going to live and uh, you know really getting to understand that future so that you can make decisions now is is really really important uh, and I, I saw something yesterday, I was doing the rounds on social media about how, how in 2100, there are projections that a lot of places will have the 10 degree temperature rise. And, you know, you just think, oh, well, that's where now children are going to be living. And, you know, it's just unfathomable that, you know, we're going to cr- do this to our planet. So I think it's really that, like, this is what's going to happen within our lifetimes or our li- children's lifetimes so that we need to make change now so that we can we can alleviate that as much as possible. Yeah, and, I mean, that sends shivers through me. It, it just it highlights that this is such a crisis and it feels like, you know, I think especially in a COVID context that it's lost a little bit of momentum um, and, and we need, really need to be focusing on what we can do to um, stop this happening. I might think back to um, whether you've got any kind of radical ideas that we could implement <laughs> to really see some big change. But um, my next question is is about um, Arab and, and how organisations can lead by example. You've been involved in the development um, of a strategy for Arab's alignment with sustainable development goals. And so... Yeah, I'm wondering in what way can organisations play a part in showing leadership in this area? Uh, I think it's a really complex um, area for for all um, uh, companies to to be um, 
tackling. And what we did a few years ago is we looked at the STGs and, uh, you know, there's there's so many and there's so much and, you know, it's not just the, the goals but the targets that go within them. And, you know, it, it's really, it seems like an unimaginable task to to tackle all of these things and so what we did is we we went back and we we said you know what what do we need to achieve within our what are the different steps and um, we basically broke it down into to four things at the time we talked about how we could educate people about what the goals were and um, what the targets were and and just what it what it all meant Uh, we looked at how do we get our staff to start thinking about how they live their lives so they're more aligned with the sustainable development goals. We thought one of our really, really key ways that we can make a difference is through our project work. So if we can make our projects more aligned with with the goals and more sustainable, we can be having influence there. That's really one of the major places that we can have impact. And uh, we also thought, um, uh, you know, what else do we need to do to to really make a step change? What are those really out there things that we could potentially do? And this is where Foresight and Innovation came in and we ran um, an SDG number of workshops and we're actually having a pitch day shortly to to, um, present the ideas. But we we presented at the time, come up with a a big idea for how we could potentially change our business, you know, a a step change and come up with something really... um, out there to to try and make that change so that was the way we tackled it over the last few years and there's there's other things that we're also doing um carbon neutral commitments and things like that so there there are a number of ways that companies can do this but I think that the key message for me is sort of break it down into different tasks that different people can do and um, really think about where you can have the biggest impact and also think about where you can sort of inspire people to do to do something different and you might get something that's that step change as well. So it's looking at the practical but also the ambitious. Looking at sustainability leadership more broadly, how do you think the construction industry is tracking? Are they, we, doing enough? Um, and where can we improve? I'm really keen to hear some of your radical ideas. Oh, well, I I have to say that, I mean, the construction industry is one of the, the slowest at innovative at innovating. Um, they certainly do lag behind other industries. And, you know, I think there's a lot of opportunity um, to really make big changes. Uh, we talk a lot about the circular economy, um, certainly materials and that kind of thing is an area that we can make huge differences. I think it's... Uh, um, having a holistic approach to to all of these different things. I mean, focusing on some of the big wins, like some of the, the materials that like have huge amounts of embodied carbon that we can rethink is, is some of those big opportunities for, for change there. But I think going all the way through to focusing on how buildings and places and everything can be really pushing the boundaries. I think a few years, certainly when I worked on um, a number of projects, we were getting some really ambitious buildings coming through, and I think now um, we're also we're also seeing that. But we see things, we see different elements to the way people do sustainability now. I think a lot of the emphasis has um, come from being able to create quite energy efficient buildings, and so we do tend to create a lot of glass boxes that are very well insulated and, and, and sealed and everything like this. But we do need to still make sure that 
those are ticking all the other boxes as far as uh, are they healthy, are they providing us places that we actually want to go. And I think in the COVID situation where a lot of people have moved to working, working from home a lot, they're really going to expect different things from their their cities and the construction industry. So this is a really great opportunity to to rethink how we can design these cities so that we can make sure they're focused um, on what people need, um, make sure they're sustainable and and healthy and um, and cover all of those other things that we need to do with cities. I'm interested to hear from you about the importance of setting a good example and inspiring the next generation through sustainable projects. And I know that you were involved in working on Australia's first carbon neutral education building, the Global Change Institute at UQ. I'm really interested to know what you think about projects in schools and universities and the importance for setting a good example for the next generation. Yeah, this is really one of my favourite projects that I've I've worked on. It was uh, such an ambitious project that looked at so many aspects of sustainability. You know, when when we list off the sustainable features of Global Change Institute, it's just this list a mile long and, and, you know, it started with natural ventilation, so designing a building to not use air conditioning 88% of the time. I mean, it's sounds almost <laughs> ridiculous but you know it's, it's totally all of these things are totally achievable and once they're done that then you have all these other options to you know geopolymer concrete was this was the first example of using geopolymer concrete in uh, structural elements uh, it had um, uh, hydronic heating embedded within those all the materials were very sustainable and it lots of solar panels, it uh, installed um, solar batteries, just such an exciting list of elements. And then within that, we also created a room, various rooms where you could go and see all of this sustainability working. It was all on display. And so the whole building became a learning environment for students. And I think projects like this are just so important for people Seeing how things are working, questioning it, um, and oh, maybe this could be done better. They're still learning by every element that's there, and I, I think if we don't show those examples, we can't see these things working. We can't have students looking to sit, to be ambitious and um, install these on on other um, projects. So the level of importance for for buildings like that, I I just think uh, amazing. And I think um, that also inspires people to go into sustainability and learn more about uh, about those elements and how they can potentially design uh, future sustainable buildings. Continuing on the theme of education and moving now from UQ to UNSW, you facilitated the Drivers of Urban Change Master's course at UNSW. Can you reflect on what you learned from this experience and what ideas came out of this course to help drive sustainable change in the built environment? Sure. This is a really exciting course that we ran for about four years at the University of New South Wales. And um, we were invited in to do a master's module with urban planners. We had a really great 
bunch of people who they had been selected for the program. And so it was really great to run quite an um, in-depth course exploring all of these different possible drives of urban change and really think about the future of a number of different elements. So we were talking to them about energy, we were talking to them about water, about transport, and bringing all these elements together for, for planners. And so, you know, these are the people that are putting our cities together. And by understanding all of these possible um, futures and complex scenarios that they needed to consider, they were really thinking um, in depth about how they could plan the cities to to, um, be better for people. You've also worked on strategy related to smart cities, including a collaboration with Brisbane City Council to develop its smart connected framework. I wonder if we could bring the conversation back to COVID again and whether you could draw on this experience to talk about some strategies to help Australian cities in response to the COVID impact. Sure. Um, I think um, when we talk about smart city strategies, um, there's a lot of discussion and and it's another of those words that some weeks is popular, some years is not, and um, it's it's just something that um, uh, we we live with. And it actually, um, at the moment, I I feel like it's quite a popular term and it's making a little bit of a resurgence. When we worked with Brisbane City Council, one of the things we did was we brought together all of their executive management team. At the time, it was one of the first times that they'd all sat in a room together and we ran some workshops and we really thought about what does smart and connected mean for Brisbane and we didn't want to create another strategy that was going to go and sit somewhere we wanted to think about the strategies that they already had and then just enhance them using elements of digital or it didn't have to be digital it could be quite an analog situation so I think the learnings from that kind of process is is something that um, we can reflect on when we're rethinking what we could do post-COVID. I think the opportunities of changes in travel, changes in people's understanding of health and well-being and being conscious of their safety as far as health goes really gives a lot of opportunity to think about how we can use these public spaces, how we can repurpose public spaces, making sure um, that we use data and data where possible or where useful to inform some of the decisions. So some of the things we've been talking about at at RFI, can we um, simulate flows of pedestrians around certain places and can we use that data to give to people so that they can make decisions on where it's safe to go. There's certainly a lot of discussion about restricting numbers at particularly like beaches and public spaces over the summer this year. And, you know, can can we give that information to people before they make these decisions to go somewhere so that they can have a much better experience throughout the city? So go go to somewhere that's not going to be overcrowded, um, not make a journey and have to turn around and go home. Some of the other things that we can be doing post-COVID is is really thinking about how we can do things um, more sustainably. I, I mean, there's a lot of investment at the moment that, you know, gas-led recovery and things like that, that, you know, you just um, have to 
really question it and just say, you know, like why why are we putting our, our, our faith in, in things like this when we know that there are solutions out there that are much more sustainable? I think the other thing is when we, we think about the economic crisis that if we're really going to be in for a, a long period of time, we've really got to think about how we provide support because we continue to give people money. Um, this, this amount of money is suitable for you to live. We don't think about what that means. I think, you know, if we could rethink how they're going to pay for their electricity bill, are we setting up community grids or something like that so that they can have ownership of that and they can take this emphasis off the the spend that they need to do to survive? I think if we can create different communities where people are sharing more um, using the circular economy, we can and reduce people's actual uh, spend that they need to be doing all of the time. Transport, again, there are so many opportunities to to um, make things more efficient but um, also improve the way people live. I think these are all things that we need to be doing in a COVID recovery. Yeah, and you've just mentioned there the gas-led recovery in reference to the budget that was announced last week. And so I was going to ask what we could use potential COVID stimulus for, but perhaps um, in light of the budget, it's not so relevant. But if you were to think aspirationally, you know, we do have um, a structural change that needs to occur in the industry to meet our commitments to the Paris Agreement and others. Yeah, if you were to, I guess, have a wish list of what would have been in the budget, um, what are some ideas that you had about how we could actually use that economic stimulus to assist a shift towards a more sustainable industry? Well, I mean, I think there are a few things that have um, probably been overlooked as far as some of the things that... um, we know create um, good benefits um, and things like social housing. We create jobs, but we also um, have a positive benefit. And if we can be creating those in ways that are, uh, are becoming communities and really changing overall lifestyles and, and sort of having a, a real shift in the way people live, I think that's one of the key areas that we want to spend on. We're um, really excited about energy prospects at the moment. So there has been quite a bit in Queensland talking about hydrogen investment and I I think there are a lot of opportunities there that are being taken but also um, really rethinking all of that energy system so that it's more resilient and it's got more opportunities and not being too focused on on one solution um, just pulling together a combination of of, um, different um, technologies that all work together and um, create uh, as I said a more resilient energy future for all of us. You've been involved in the research and development of energy efficiency codes and you mentioned your experience with the building codes. I'm interested to hear your take on the importance and effectiveness of regulatory systems in mandating sustainability practices rather than, for example, market-driven approaches. I'd, I mean, you need both, um, absolutely. Um, but, you know, we've certainly seen other countries like UK um, uh, push a lot harder and the market will adjust and I think a lot of the time we're a bit too light on and we don't push um, push enough with those minimum requirements. So I do think you need both. It's great that there are ambitious schemes out there, but a lot of the time and particularly, you know, when we start to look at, say, a downturn um, in the economy, which we'll be facing, it's then that you start to get people to drift back to the bare minimum 
and that's where we need these benchmarks that people can't go below and so i mean in brisbane at the moment we've just been working on there's a um a, a new policy that gives incentives to to green buildings where brisbane city council will um give pay for some of the cost of more green developments um and so i think you know that's great initiative that that they've got there um but yeah we really need to have that minimum benchmark up, pulled up so that we get rid of just really poor buildings. You know, it, it always ends up that the lower quality buildings are where sort of our, our, our less financially wealthy people are living and so that um, it just exacerbates all of these these problems, you know, increased um, uh, energy bills and, and decreased comfort because you have a lower rating of building. And so um, I really think there's a lot of opportunity to to push a lot harder and also when they they do make decisions about uh, the energy codes bring them in and um and um, a lot quicker and enforce them a lot more from 2010 to 2012 you were chair of the society for sustainability and environmental engineers since that experience almost 10 years ago how has the sentiment and action around sustainability changed Oh, I can't believe it's that long ago. Um, I think there's been a number of different changes over that 10 years since um, since I, I was chair of the society. And I think certainly within the society and, and there's there's a key people, a key group of people um, that uh, are very strong in the sustainability sphere. And I think, you know, is it the, the fact that you have um, really um, intelligent and um, a great group of people that uh, interested in sustainability, uh, you get this constant baseline where um, people are, have a similar driver and are similarly want want things to just to succeed. But um, the wider scheme of, of people sometimes more sustainable and less sustainable. So I think when I was was chair, uh, there was quite a, um, a strong. Um, emphasis on sustainability. I think over the years between there, there was a bit of a drop off, but I really feel like at the moment there's a really strong resurgence of people understanding that they're starting to see the impacts of climate change. They're starting to see the impacts of not doing things sustainably. I, the bushfires is um, globally is just unbelievable, and and to think that you know that's only going to get worse and worse, and I think people are really starting to see those effects now. So I think the shift is very much around how can we do things more sustainably now, and I think there are a lot of um, businesses, a lot of other money that's getting behind the sustainability movement, and I think that probably the other key thing that's different between then and now is in the energy space. I mean, back then we were, we had to put up a, a business case to get um, solar panels and things like that. And it was always a, um, a bit of a discussion, but now it's so clear that the costs are, are low enough for these two things to be mainstream. And I think that shift is just um, uh, so prominent um, that particularly with developers and things like that, they'll put as much PV on it as, as they can because they know that they get the return on the investment as long as they own the building. And so you see all of this investment um, for people who own and operate to, to put their money into sustainable features. That is a really positive shift to see happening. 
As a sustainability leader, you have the opportunity to help set the agenda for what we need to be focusing on in the development and construction industries. What are your main priorities for the next year and next five years? Well, um, I would say that particularly in this year, we're talking a lot about wellness and quite holistically, uh, one of the key projects I'm working with at the moment is with a group in Thailand, actually, and um, it's uh, an amazing group of developers who really want to refocus and think about how they can be creating developments and urbanisation that really respond to particularly health and wellness from a um, overall livability side of things and um, considering things like cultural elements and traditions that shape people's lives. So that's a, that's a really amazing project that, are, that we're working on. Another thing that I'm starting to see quite a bit and, and really it works with both of my interests is bringing space into um, uh, space technology knowledge in, um, into everything that we do in the built environment. So we've just uh, started, um, we've been selected for the Gravity Challenge, working with the Australian Space Agency um, on a challenge for Sydney Water, um, where we have proposed that we can use satellite data and drone footage to look at um, clean waterways and also urban heat. So I really think that, that being able to use this uh, much more detailed monitoring of observation um, will really let us uh, understand more about um, what's going on um, and being able to make much better decisions and also have a bit more evidence around sustainable decisions that, that we're making. And I suppose just to throw in a third one, I'm really interested in um, waste. And so um, one of the things we've been looking about looking at is how you can detect um, waste in um, the waterways um, using satellite data. And I think that's really exciting space where we can start to, to see how we can we can address some of those issues. Circling back to the theme of female representation in environmental leadership, do you have any advice to those who are striving to make a difference in the field? Sure, I did. I give female leaders advice, or future female leaders advice all the time because I just think you know if you've got the passion, there's so much opportunity to to get out there and do it. And it's really just a matter of setting yourself some direction and whatever your interests are. Start by um, I mean, studying. There's so so many great courses out there that you can do to to get into the field. There's certainly a lot of female mentors out there and everyone in the field is so generous as to wanting to get people in not driven by other things who really just want to create a community of people who are passionate about sustainability and, and you know creating um, a better world for um, future generations and so I think um, if, if you want to get into sustainability there's so many there's so many avenues and certainly just reach out to to the female leaders that you see out there um, anyone in the field um, and um, just get into it <laughs> great advice <laughs> finally I'd like to end on a question about inspiration if you could name one thing that has been instrumental in shaping the kind of sustainability leader you are today, it could be a book, a place, a person, an idea or an experience, what would that be? Oh, just one. Um, I, I, I suppose um, for me I have to circle back to when I was growing up. My, As I said at the start, you know, from a very early age, my mother always taught us about 
how we should use things and how we should appreciate things. And so we never, um, you know, would leave a light on or we would never run water and we always had compost. So, you know, really from an early age, I understood the need to really respect um, the planet and, and what we had. And so I suppose stepping back to that, I would have to say that's probably, you know, what instilled that understanding that, um, that we need to be very respectful. And thank you so much for your time today. That has been such an interesting discussion. I've loved hearing about your upbringing and the impact your mum has had on you and also your very unique path through Arrows. <laughs> thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's been, it's been fun. Design Conscious is a podcast created by me, Sarah Lawler, as part of the 2020 International Women's Day Scholarship, supported by NAWIC.